Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to optimize our gut microbiome to heal our bodies, diving into the best tricks for being more productive in our daily lives, or figuring out exactly what we want and how to get it in the bedroom. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today, we are talking about one of your most highly requested episodes, how to make friends as an adult, how to keep those friendships strong, and basically everything you need to know to feel satisfied in the friendship arena of your life. I really want to normalize this topic because as we talk about in the episode, adult friendships are hard for everyone, and that's even without a global pandemic and Zoom workplaces and all of that. So if you feel like they're hard, I really want you to know that it is not you and you are not alone. And there are some really wonderful hacks and tips and tricks that you can employ that will make a big difference in this part of your life. So have hope, be excited. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Marissa G. Franco as today's guest. Marissa is a professor, psychologist, and the author of the new book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, which just came out this week. She has been featured in media outlets like Good Morning America, The Today Show, The New York Times, and NPR, and has spent her career studying the science and research behind friendship. On this episode, we talk about why it's so hard to make friends as an adult, the best trick for turning work friends into real friends, simple hacks to make people like you more, the best places to make new friends, how to make friends outside of your own race, age, or socioeconomic background, the single rule that will change how you approach making friends, the best friend dates, exactly how to have conversations that deepen friendships without feeling like you're making all of the effort how to turn acquaintances into close friends, how to make a best friend, what to do if you feel like you keep getting rejected by potential friends, the biggest green flags and red flags to look out for when choosing new friends, what to do when your friends have babies, get married, or otherwise enter different life phases, low-hanging fruit for maintaining existing friendships with as little effort as possible, how to make friends with people who up-level your life, why it tends to be harder for men to make close friends and how to help them, how to make friends when you don't vibe with any of the people who live by you, and so much more. As always, Dr. Franco and I would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, and I really want to know what you learn or what surprises you most, so definitely screenshot and tag us both on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and she is at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. And if you love this episode, please share it with a friend, a family member, or coworker. There's truly so much important stuff in here to destigmatize and bring out into the open. And also, it's just fascinating conversation starters. Like, I've been going around talking about the two men who ruin male friendships for everyone else since I interviewed Marissa. Also, sharing the podcast is the single best way to support the show. And I am 100% aware that the immense growth that we've experienced is because of all of you adding links to your Slack channels at work and sending them to your moms or your besties. And it is so, so, so appreciated. And also, the bigger the show gets, the more I can get the absolute best guests for each of the subjects that we're tackling. So we all win. We do have a giveaway for this episode, so make sure you stay tuned till the end to find out how to enter. And without further ado, here's Dr. Marissa Franco. Marissa, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. I feel like friendship is one of those things that 
it plagues everybody a little bit, but we just don't talk about it that much. Absolutely. That's definitely one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. I felt like we really were not talking about friendship enough. So let's just dive right into it. Why is it so hard to make friends as an adult? Like, is it because we're out of practice? Is it a new problem? Is it something that people have always dealt with? I'd love to just normalize it a little bit and take some of the shame or the, I'm the only one who has this issue out of it. So Rebecca Adams, she's a sociologist, and she argues that for friendship to happen organically, we need repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability like we get in school, right? I see you every day. We have gym, lunch, recess, these times where we can really let our guard down. But as we become adults, we just lack these same spaces. Like for some of us, that's work. But for a lot of us, it's like, I'm not actually comfortable sharing myself in work. You're only going to see one side of me, which is why one study actually found that the more time we spend together at work, the less close we are, which is a real bummer. So I think the problem with making friends as an adult is just that we take the same template from childhood where we're like, friends will just come into my life. I won't have to try. It'll just happen. Not realizing that as an adult, we just inhabit really different infrastructure and we can't rely on that same assumption. So let's dive into the office dynamic a little bit because I think that does feel like the most natural place that we can meet friendships, but it also comes with all of its own issues of like, oh, this is my boss or we're working on a project together, stuff like that. Do you approve or do you think that trying to make friends with coworkers is a good idea? I hear people say making friends with coworkers, you know, they can betray your trust or there's stuff that you might not want to get out in the workplace that could be used against you, which I think is real and does happen some of the time. But overwhelmingly, people are very happy with their friends at work. And most people do not experience these grave betrayals with their workplace friends. And we know that having friends at work contributes to your innovation at work, your retention, how engaged you are at the job. So it's one of the biggest predictors of of how satisfied and fulfilled we are in our jobs. It's really, really important, which is why when I first became a professor, I was just like, I have so much work to do. I'm not going to try to create connections with people because that's going to take away from my work. And I found myself so isolated, so unhappy, and not even as productive as these people that had tried to connect because it would be like water cooler conversations that would lead to one professor asking another to be on a grant, right? Or to offer them some sort of opportunity. So I was just like, I am not working smarter. I'm working harder and it's not making me happy and it's not making me successful at my job. So you said though that the more time we spend with somebody at work, the less that we feel like they know us. How do we overcome that hurdle? My hypothesis, and the study didn't examine why, but it's it's just that we are only showing one side of ourselves, one dimension of ourselves at work. People only know whatever my skill is, we just talk about work, right? And and that really stifles connection when we don't know the breadth of someone. Relationships get deeper when people know different sides of us. So I would say if you want to make friends at work, you have to stop talking about work. You have to start talking about who you are as a person, your hobbies, your interests, your thoughts. People are afraid to be vulnerable at work because they're like, things can be used against me. So they tend to be so closed off. But vulnerability is really a spectrum. There's a lot of things you can share that reveal something about you that are not risky, like your hobbies, your interests, you know, your accomplishments, what's going right in your life, like your friends, your day-to-day. A lot of these things, they're not dicey information, but they do help us create connections. Second thing that I would say, and this is a little bit more difficult in this remote world, but Ryan Hubbard founded this social project called the Kite Stream Project, and he has this term, repotting, that I really like. And it just means 
varying the settings in which you interact. So when we start interacting outside of the workplace, that deepens our friendship, according to the research. And not only that, but once we switch jobs, we have this president that we don't have to be in this shared space for us to have a connection. So the relationship will just be more likely to continue. That's so interesting. I love the idea that vulnerability is a spectrum. I've never heard it said in that way before. I think I can often think I'm either being vulnerable or I'm not being vulnerable, but rather the levels of vulnerability that we can give to people in our lives. I think that's beautiful. Let's get very granular in this work thing. We want to bring up our hobbies. It feels so awkward. You're like on a Zoom call with somebody or you're hanging out in the office kitchen and are you supposed to just be like, I like volleyball. What is the way to do that where you don't feel desperate, you don't feel weird? How do you naturally bring that up? Well, first I want to say a lot of the stuff that we feel awkward doing doesn't necessarily come off as awkward to other people. So it's not inherently awkward, even if it feels awkward. Research finds that, for example, telling people you like them and value them. People think that comes off as awkward. Actually, other people really appreciate it. We're bad at predicting how our behavior comes off. I think it can just start with like, oh, how was your weekend? Or what types of things do you like to do outside of work? Those questions that just welcome people to share more about who they are and less about their work. Is there anything else that research would point to that would be little tricks? Like you just said that when we tell people that we really value them and appreciate them or that that reads in a really positive way. Is there anything else that that we can hack? Liz, you asked a great question. This is something you are touching on a piece of thread attached to a large ball of yarn because we in general have this negativity bias when it comes to connection such that we predict things are going to go lousier than they actually will in reality. And this fundamentally impacts how we navigate our friendship. So let me give you the specific studies. There's research that finds that when strangers interact, they underestimate how much the other person likes them. It's called the liking gap. And the more self-critical you are, the more pronounced that underestimation is. So people like you more than you think. I talked about the affection study. There's another study that just came out on texting your friends to check in with and reconnect with someone that you haven't talked to in a while, finding that they tend to enjoy that reconnection message more than you assume. And when it's particularly surprising, such that you hadn't talked in a while and they didn't expect it, they like it even more. Also, research on vulnerability. We tend to predict that our vulnerability will come off negatively and people will judge us. In fact, according to the research on something called the beautiful mess effect, people judge our vulnerability less than we think and they appreciate it and value it more than we think. So if you were to distill that into some actionable advice that we could all do, would you say like text a friend you haven't talked to in a while, maybe give somebody praise and open up about something that you might be a little bit uncomfortable with? Those are great takeaways. One big takeaway that I I share with people based on this research that our predictions are so off is just assume people like you. This is according to some research on on something called the acceptance prophecy, where, where when researchers told people they'd be liked based on their personalities, if they go into this group, that made them warmer, more agreeable, more open. And it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, that is so interesting. Yeah. And people that fear rejection, when they meet ambiguous circumstances that potentially could be rejection, like someone hasn't texted them back or didn't say hi to them, they assume it's rejection. What happens is they start rejecting people. They become colder, withdrawn. People reject them back and they don't realize their own role to play in that process. So 
even if somebody's not responding to a text or something like that, assume good intentions instead of negative intentions? Yep. And that just makes us happier mentally overall. It improves our relationships. It makes us more mentally happy. It just benefits us all around. And some people are feel like, oh, what if I'm being naive and they actually don't like me? You know, that's possible. It's going to happen sometimes, but it's going to actually feel like a lot less of a psychological weight to realize in a moment, oh, I thought they liked me and it doesn't seem like they do, than it does to carry that suspicion literally all the time. Like people are judging me. People are going to reject me. Do you have any tips for how we can get into that frame of mind? Because it sounds great in theory and I'm like, yes, I would love to go into every interaction being like, I am fabulous and everybody wants to be my friend. But in truth, so many of us have gone into so many situations with the opposite mindset for so long. So I'll respond to this using research that I read after the book. So exclusive add-on for Platonic. Rick Hansen, he's the psychologist and he studies what's called taking in the good. We have a um, the Dr. Happiness edition with Dr. Hansen, and he's phenomenal. Awesome. He has a great, great framework. I won't get into it. Listen to that episode. But just to say that he, he sort of suggests when you savor signals of safety, like a lot of the time we don't even register times when people are accepting us. Like when people compliment us, we're like, no, 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 not me. Someone smiles at us and we just go on to the next thing. Someone holds the door for us and we don't actually take it in. And so he sort of argues that When you actually take in these moments, pause, focus on them, let them stir an emotion in you before you move on, you can really change your brain chemistry because when you focus on something and when it stirs an emotion, that triggers hormones that lead to changes in how your neurons are connected. And so I would say start looking for and savoring signals of safety from other people to help override your brain's natural tendency to look for moments of threat. And the more you do it as a practice, again, it's a practice. It's not something that's going to come naturally after one moment. The more your brain's going to do it automatically over time. He says, like, what is state becomes trait. What you practice becomes part of who you are. It's so interesting. I've used that since I interviewed him to just try to rewire my neurons in the direction of positive, good things in general, but I've never thought to apply it to my relationship. Never thought to be like, oh, this feels safe. This feels good. This is a sign that somebody likes me. And to really sit and linger in those, I've more sat and lingered in a beautiful walk in nature or the feeling of reading a really good book or things like that. And it's so interesting to take this thing I've been doing in a solo context that's been working really, really well. It's one of those takeaways that I learned in a podcast episode that's completely transformed my brain and my life. And to take that solo takeaway and start to apply it to my relationships, I feel like is going to be transformative. Yeah, I certainly think so. Have you done it? Yeah. The whole assuming people like you think, I'm so much more confident, to be honest. And this makes sense because according to the research, like there's this theory called the sociometric theory, which argues that We think our self-esteem is how we feel about ourselves and whether we love ourselves, but it's actually a gauge of how we think people feel about us. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it's a surprising and indirect way to even become more confident yourself to like take it in, assume people like you, and then you actually feel like, oh, like I'm starting to feel good about myself or my self-esteem is starting to increase. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. When Zach and I started Healthy Convo Co., we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just used Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation, even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lizm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lizm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lizm. If you like saving both money and time on healthy food, you are going to love this. I've been a fan of Thrive Market forever. Fun fact, they were actually one of the first brands that I worked with when I transitioned to full-time content creation, and that happened even though I barely had an audience because I just reached out to my absolute top favorite brands and pestered them until they wanted to work with me. And I am so excited because right now, all of you amazing listeners out there can get 40% off your first order when you join Thrive Market today and a free gift worth over $50. I love Thrive Market for so many reasons, but I'd say the convenience factor is absolutely at the top of the list. You can find everything from pantry staples like spices, rice, and cacao to the more specialty items that I used to have to go to like three grocery stores to find, like arrowroot or pumpkin puree when it's out of season or an organic pasta sauce that's actually free of added sugar. They also have pasture-raised and grass-fed meat, which is shipped frozen to your door and bath and body essentials like sunscreen, toothpaste, and deodorant, so it's really one-stop shopping. Also, let's be real, most of us get a lot of the same stuff every time we go to the store. Thrive remembers that, so it's easy to add all of your personal go-to items back to your cart, and then you can browse to throw in new fun stuff to try, like avocado oil chips or dark chocolate-covered almonds. I highly recommend both of those, by the way. Also, let's talk about prices for a second. I'm not going to lie, eating healthy can be expensive. One of the best things about Thrive Market is that they guarantee the lowest prices on everything they sell. Literally, if you find a lower price somewhere else, they will match it. I feel like I should say that again because it's like a big deal. Literally, if you find a lower price somewhere else, they will match it, which means Thrive Market's prices are the lowest ones anywhere. Seriously, Browse their stuff. It's already the lowest price on so many of the products. It's the lowest price I've seen on almond flour, which I love to use in my baked goods to make them more blood sugar stable, but it can often be so pricey. 
Everything is carefully vetted for quality of ingredients and sourcing. Like if it's on Thrive Market, it's pretty much Liz Moody approved. And I do not say that lightly. You can also search by over 90 values. So you can quickly find the brand qualities that matter to you most, whether you're looking for certified B corporations, gluten-free or keto products, or BIPOC-owned businesses. Voting with our dollar is so important, and the fact that Thrive Market makes it so easy to put your money where your mouth is, literally, is such a huge win. Can your grocery store do that? Now it can when you go to thrivemarket.com slash healthier together. Join today and get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash healthier together to get 40% off your first order and a free gift worth over $50. Thrivemarket.com slash healthier together. Now let's get back to the episode. So it's almost like a little trick in some ways. Like it almost doesn't matter if the people actually like you, even though according to a lot of the research that you've done, they probably do. And it's probably cyclical as well, right? Because if you go into interactions thinking people like you, they will like you and then more people will like you and then you can go into more interactions thinking people will like you and so on and so forth forever. And then you'll have more self-esteem and then you'll be like, well, why wouldn't anybody like me? I'm fabulous and everything will be great. It's so self-reinforcing. And that's why I say it's a good assumption to make because even if someone's like, "Mm, I don't know if I love them, if you have this assumption going in, you're more likely to change their mind about you. Even if it's not true, it's helpful and it's useful. So let's say we're on board. Let's take work out of the equation. We want to make friends who really represent who we are as people now. Where can we start outside of the office? Take something you're interested in and do it in community. So Is that reading books, you can do a book club, going for walks, your hiking club, you know, learning languages, your language club, meditating, your meditation club. And I always advise people to do something that's repeated over time. So don't go to the language workshop, go to the language club. Don't go to the one happy hour, go to the ongoing professional development networking events. And the reason being, so interesting study, I have a lot of interesting studies. We love interesting studies here, so please keep sharing them, yeah. So these psychologists, they planted these women into a psychology class for a varying number of classes, either none of the classes or most of the classes. At the end of the semester, they asked people in this large psychology lecture, do you know who any of these women are? And they were like, no, because it was a huge lecture. But they also asked them, how much do you like each of these women, showing them pictures of the woman? And they found that the woman who showed up to the most classes was liked about 20% more than the woman that didn't show up to any And what this tells us is something called the mere exposure effect, which is basically the idea that when people are familiar to us, we like them more. They don't even have to say anything to us. It's completely unconscious. They also like us more. So what does that mean that if you join something repeated over time, you allow the mere exposure effect to set in? Eventually, things are going to feel less awkward. You're going to feel less weary. People are just going to be more likely to engage with one another. And I think this is also helpful to keep in mind because for me in college, I showed up at one club event and I was like, no one really talked to me. I didn't connect with anyone. I'm not going to go back. Like after just one event, not knowing that if you stay for like three months, if you actually commit to something, that's what's necessary to form those connections. You can't assume that after just meeting someone for an hour that all of a sudden now you're like officially friends. Is the flip side of that why we tend to make friends that look like us, that have the same background as us, because those are things that we've been exposed to and are thus more familiar and comfortable with? 
That is a good question. I would imagine, yes, the research points to something called disregard criteria, which are basically criteria that we hold kind of unconsciously that we use to determine whether someone can potentially be our friend. And we use this criteria before they even open their mouth. So it could be gender, it could be race, it could be age, right? I think that's been a growing area for me, just always relating to people that are older as authority figures. So if someone's significantly older than me, assuming, oh, we can't possibly be friends. So I think making friends who are sort of different from us requires us to recognize I'm using this disregard criteria, but that doesn't actually mean that this person wouldn't be a great friend to me. Are there other ways to override that disregard criteria for people who are looking to expand what their friendship circle looks and feels like? So this comes from some of the research on interracial friendships, right? And I think sometimes when we engage with people that have a different identity than us, we assume that we can relate to them almost by stereotyping them. You know, as a Black woman, people will be like, hey, girl. And I'm like, you don't actually know how I talk, though. In the research, it's this phenomenon called habitual open-mindedness, which basically means you go in and you assume a blank slate. You say to yourself, just because of how they look, that doesn't mean anything about how they act, their behavior, or their character. That doesn't mean that I know anything about them, really. And I am going to allow them to create who they are over time in front of me. I love that. What do you think of the apps? like the BFF and all of those types of things? I like the apps. I think for a lot of people that don't end up choosing to engage in a regular community, they give you an alternative option to connect with people. And the research on social media and loneliness basically finds that it's a complex relationship. Social media makes us more lonely when we lurk, when we use it to displace time that we would have used to spend with people. Now we're just on our phones, right? When we basically use it instead of social connection, it's like snacking instead of eating a nutrient-filled meal. But when we use social media to actually reach out, to post comments on people's walls, not just to lurk and scroll, but to engage and to ask people to hang out, then actually social media is linked to less loneliness. Problem is, most of us use social media in a sort of lurking type way most of the time, so it tends to actually negatively affect our mental health and sense of connection. But if you're using the apps, I think the implications of this research is don't just do it passively because you have nothing to do. If you actually want to connect with people, start asking people to connect and meet up in person. So a best case scenario with using social media would be using it to find the hiking clubs, the reading clubs, the language clubs, things like that. Exactly. Or even to slide into someone's DMs like, oh man, I've totally loved your post. Would you be open to connecting further? Do you feel like there's a boundary there? Like, Do you feel like it's always okay to kind of blind reach out to people like that on social? I think the struggle we have with friendship is the ambiguity of it. What's acceptable to one person is not acceptable to another person. And it's hard, right? And for example, even when it comes to frequency, some people are like, I love to hang out once every day. I love to hang out once a week. And we don't really know someone's preferences until we take the risk and put ourselves out there. And so that's tricky because you're taking a risk. You could be rejected. Someone may be like, I don't really connect with people in this way. I don't use Instagram for this, right? But other people might be like, Oh, yeah, totally. Like, especially, for example, queer communities, I think it's a lot more typical where people will just be like, oh, yeah, you're queer too. Let's connect. It's such an interesting point that the ambiguity, I do think, is one of the biggest barriers to early stages of friendship because you're kind of like, I want to be 
into it, but I don't want to be more into that than than this person that I'm talking to. Am I going to come off as desperate or weird? Do you think it's good to like have a conversation where you're like, I like to text frequently or to put this stuff out on the table or just to make peace with it in your own head that life is ambiguous and that's okay? That's a great question. And it's one that I want to just normalize. And just because you wanted something more than someone else wanted doesn't mean you're desperate or clingy. It's great that we have people that are out there ready to connect. That's a great quality that you love more easily. Even in the research, we find that half of people we consider our friends don't consider us our friends. So yeah, <laughs> so we're all struggling with the ambiguity of friendship. I think it's it's part of what makes friendship beautiful, but it's also part of what makes friendship really hard. I've heard people talk about flirting. They recommend that when you flirt with someone, acknowledge and observe their response to your flirting. Just because you want to flirt with someone doesn't mean you should continue to flirt with someone if their response seems to be more closed off or disinterested, right? So I think to figure out the ambiguities of friendship, especially early on, I think later on it's it's more normal to have a conversation, but earlier on, observe the impact of your actions. Don't just choose a course of action when it comes to friendship that has no relation to how the other person seems to be responding and whether they seem to be reciprocating and whether they seem to be interested in. And you can modulate your response based on how their response seems to be. My book is based in attachment theory and attachment styles. And that's one of the differences we see between people that are securely attached or secure in their relationships versus people that are anxiously attached who think everybody is about to abandon them. The securely attached people, they start optimistic and hopeful. They start assuming people like them. But when people don't seem to like them, they can adjust and say, okay, this person isn't as interested. I'll go elsewhere. (laughs) Whereas the anxiously attached people, they see people aren't interested and they double down further. They're not reading the cue of disinterest because they are afraid of being abandoned. They want to feel like they're not being abandoned. So they push further when someone's clearly giving a signal of needing more space or wanting to pull back. So if we recognize ourselves in the latter part, are you just like, go get some therapy or what? <laughs> how, how do we change our friendship attachment style? When it comes to this in particular, my golden rule is when people don't want to be your friend, walk away, don't work harder. I just see people asking questions like, how do I get them to be my friend? And I'm like, you don't. You find other people that want to be your friend. Think about the impact of this. If you're trying to be friends with people that have no interest in you, you're welcoming unhealthy relationships into your life. You're welcoming relationships with people that don't treat you well, that aren't invested in you, and you're bringing them into your life versus leaving those relationships and choosing relationships with people that are just as interested in having a friendship with you. So that's how I recommend us approaching friendship. What if you keep getting rejected? Like you keep putting yourself out there and people are busy or they're uninterested or they have their own group of friends already that they don't want to add people to. Do you have any advice for not getting discouraged and just being like, well, fine, I'll go live in a cabin in the middle of the woods? I have two tips that I want to share. One is you can't judge the value of an act based on an outcome you cannot control. And if you're initiating and people are rejecting you, that doesn't mean you failed because you're not in control of the outcome. You're only in control of your behavior. So I think it's helpful for us to reframe. If I initiated, I'm proud of myself. I succeeded for what I was in control of. I completed, right? And I'm gaining this new skill of being able to put myself out there. So I succeed no matter what the outcome is. I think it's helpful to to think about it like that. 
The other thing that I would suggest, one reason why we may get rejected is because we are maybe choosing to try to engage with people who aren't in a good place for friendship. So something that I recommend to people, people that tend to be really open to friendship are at times of transition in their lives. They just moved to a new city. They just got out of a relationship. They're just traveling to a new country for a few months. If we want to make friends, we can find the people that are particularly open to friendship, which tends to be people that have retired recently. It's these transitioners. And so going to a welcome to DC group event, people might be a lot more open to connecting with you than if you're just trying to connect with people at work who go home and you know have kids to take care of. That makes a lot of sense. And I think sometimes at least with me, when I moved to London, I was like, oh, I need to become friends with all of the other people who are really established here. And something about like, I'm the outsider. I don't want to just bond with other outsiders. But of course, that made my life so much harder when I could have just looked for other people who were in more of a place of transition and who are less established there. Exactly. Yeah, it is harder with those people that are established. So let's go back to our club, taking our hobby and finding a way to do it in a recurring way. How do we find those clubs? Am I just Googling hiking club San Francisco? I think meetup is great. You can Google this club in your specific area of interest, like using the internet. What about like a book club though? I was a member of the best book club in the world in New York City. And I want to mimic that whenever I move to a new town, but I just got into it because a friend invited me. That's a good point. One thing that I recommend when people move to a new city or go somewhere new is, and this can be hard if you're totally new, but asking your existing network, this is how you get into the established people. Hey, do you know anyone here? I'm hoping to meet new people. Do you think you could put me in touch with anyone? Or even if you're already been a part of that city, just like, hey, friend who lives elsewhere, I've just been really wanting to meet new people. Do you know anyone who might be open to connecting with me? For example, using your established connections, I'm sure we know this with like networking, which is a lot more likely to happen when you have this sort of warm lead. I think that's how you can get into some of the networks that are more established, piggybacking off your pre-existing connections. But the second thing that I'll say, because I've created a lot of groups in my life. I have La Cena, which was like a monthly Spanish-speaking group. I have a writing critique group that I started when I was writing my book to get feedback on it. The impetus for Platonic, my book now, was that I started a wellness group. And every week we would I would meet up with friends and we would practice wellness, cooking, doing yoga, meditating. So I am a fan of starting the group. And you don't even have to know that many people to start the group. Like for my writing group, I knew one other author and I was like, hey, like, do you want to start this group with me? Which takes a lot of the pressure off when you have a (laughs) co-leader. And so I asked her to start the group with me. And then we each were trying to bring in one other author. And then we had a group of four already. So delegating is a really great way to get that group started and get it off the ground. Let's say you've reached out to your network. You're like, hey, do you know anybody in this city? Should we be immediately asking them, are there any groups that you're part of that perhaps I should join? Or is there a really good friend date that you think is worthwhile asking people out of? Are there better or worse friend dates? You can ask them like, I've actually been looking to connect to different groups in the city. Do you know anyone cool ones? Because people that have been in the city a while will just know those groups that are harder to find. But then when you go on your first friend date, you can speak to the value of different things, right? Because we find in the research 
having fun together increases feelings of connection. So you can just do something that you consider fun, but also vulnerability increases feelings of connection with one another. So sitting down and having lunch and sharing a little bit about yourself and welcoming the other person to share can also really create that connection. There's this theory called the theory of inferred attraction. And the idea behind it is that people like people that they think like them. And so being really good at connecting with people, Mother Oprah would tell us, is about, I love Oprah, about making other people feel like they matter and about making other people feel valued. Actually, that's the number one trait people report that they look for in a friend. There's this really cool theory called risk regulation theory, which basically argues that we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our determination of how likely we are to get rejected. So those people that convince me I will not get rejected are the ones that I invest more in. Those people that make me think I will get rejected are the ones that I invest less in. So the more that you can show people, I like you, I value you, you're great, I've really loved hearing about this, this is what I really enjoyed about our conversation, the more that you're going to connect with people and be able to make friends. So I'm very aware of that idea that people almost like you if you give them an opportunity to talk about themselves. I feel like I'm a very curious person. I love asking questions. Clearly, I've created my entire career around it. And so I'll often go out and I'll meet a new person and I'll ask them a lot about their lives and we'll get into this great conversation and they'll come away and I'll hear from a friend like, oh my gosh, this person really loved you. They thought you were so great. And I'll be like, they didn't ask me a single thing about myself. And it makes me like them less. So is there a way to take advantage of some of the research that you shared without feeling like you're the one carrying the weight of all of this or you're the one directing the conversation? Honestly, as a psychologist, I have the same problem where I am asking people about themselves, even if they're not necessarily asking me about myself. And there's less Emotional symmetry is one of the things that is linked to deepening our relationships, which basically means you're sharing and I'm sharing. (laughs) And in fact, when we both enjoy it more, if we're both able to share, I think to apply the research on this, sometimes us listeners, we're called openers in the research. We help people open up and we tend to have closer friendships because of it. We need to start butting in with information about ourselves sometime because the interaction is going to go better for both of us, right? Person-centered communication is when you focus on the other person. You ask them questions, you follow up, you restate what they say back to them. And that tends to, to make people feel good and make people feel validated versus a shift response, which shifts the focus back to you. And I think sometimes we might just need a little bit of a balance of those things, because if we're not interested in the relationship, the relationship isn't going to go well. So we have to consider ourselves too. Like it's not just about getting people to like us, because if people like us and we don't like them, the friendship isn't going to go anywhere. So I think sometimes we have to be like, that's cool. You went to Cambodia. Let me tell you about that time I went to Italy because I really love that vacation too. And it feels uncomfortable because you're like, I just want you to ask me. Because you asking it feels like a signal that they care. And I I don't want to be like, well, I'm forcing you to care about my trip to Italy when you maybe don't, but maybe it's just about the communication style and it's not actually a sign of how much somebody's interested or disinterested. Is that kind of what you're saying? I think that's what I'm saying. I think some people are just not question askers, no matter how much they like you. (laughs) You probably have seen them before. Do you have any tips for people who feel like 
maybe they're bad at small talk or maybe they just hate small talk and want to move to those deeper, more intimate, more vulnerable conversations. Do you have any tips for getting us there? The research shows that people actually like our vulnerable conversations more than we think they do. I know this is is a thing that introverts say, like, I hate small talk. I like to go deep. And, you know, people like shallow conversations. They do shallow conversations. That doesn't mean they necessarily like them. So I think that we can lean into that a little. Like when I was going on dates, I would ask, what do I need to make this date fun, interesting to me? I would ask that question that was maybe a little bit more personal, realizing that what keeps me engaged, there's this theory called reciprocity theory, which kind of argues that how you show up affects how other people show up. If you're angry, other people are more likely to be angry. If you're bored, other people are more likely to be bored. So it's the question was like, how could I be engaged? Because I know that that's going to make them engaged and interested too. So I would ask more of these, these probing or personal questions. And of course, you can read people. Some people, they just won't give you much of a response. And maybe that's a sign like, hey, hey, back up. But probably more people than you think will be like, oh, yeah, like actually, let me like, let me share a little bit about this. Do you do that apropos of nothing? I feel like I created literally an entire conversation starter deck that I could manufacture and sell because I like being able to be like, well, I just pulled out this question card and it says this. It's not me asking this question. It's this question card. Yeah, you can sort of displace the the responsibility or the riskiness of it. You're like, it's the question card's fault. <laughs> but do you do it apropos of nothing? Will you just kind of be like, Big question, or do you feel like you need to couch it? How do I usually go about this conversation? There's this term for psychologists, the cathexis, which is like where someone's energy is when they are answering a question. What part of their answer are they like excited about, or it seems like there's more to it? It takes like you being able to really observe what they say. And so I'll I'll usually go in for the cathexis and ask something like a little bit more deep. Like for example, like with a colleague, we were just talking about his son and what's it like to be a father. And I was just like, oh yeah, like, have you always wanted to have kids? And then I was sharing, like, this is how I think about having kids. Just there's ways to take a shallow conversation more deep if you're able to observe the other person and figure out what they're interested in talking about more. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. If you have dry skin, this is going to be your holy grail. I've loved, loved, loved the Osea Andaria Algae Body Butter for years. It is so rich and creamy and lush, but it sinks right into your skin, and it makes your entire body feel moisturized and not greasy at all. I actually do not understand how it's so not greasy and yet so, so hydrating. As fall approaches, I'm leaning into mini spa energy, these micro-relaxing moments you can insert throughout your day. Because peppering your day with tiny bits of calm can have huge impacts on overall cortisol levels, on your anxiety, even how you sleep at night, and the smell of the body butter. Holy cow, it is pure spa energy. You get that like laying on the massage table, melting energy. It is phenomenal. I've gone through at least four tubs of this personally, and that is saying something because it lasts a long ass time. A little bit goes a very long way. I also always keep extras on hand to give out as gifts. 
It uses ingredients that you would normally see in face care products like seaweed, ceramides, glycerin, which I am obsessed with for hydration and think is so underrated, amino acids, even a skin-identical moisture complex. Also, here is a little tip. If you want to amp up its hydrating power even more, put it on damp skin right after the shower to really lock in all of that moisture and hydration. Like all Osea products, it's formulated with real seaweed to take advantage of its nutrient-rich benefits like deep moisturization. It's also vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Osea has actually been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. And I personally absolutely love how everything is ethically tested and sourced. For clean body care that gives you skincare-level results, you've got to try Osea. And right now we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with promo code LizMoody at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and orders over $60 get free shipping. While you're there, get the body butter, of course, but I'm also obsessed with the Vegas Nerve Oil and Pillow Mist, both of which help so much with my anxiety. I love rubbing the oil on my hands and inhaling deeply before I meditate to make it feel more intentional and calming and grounding. You are going to want it all. Go to OSEAMalibu.com, promo code Liz Moody. We love talking about our gut health here on the Healthier Together podcast, which is why I'm so excited to share the life-changing Seed Daily Symbiotic. I actually discovered Seed back when I was working as an editor full-time. A bottle came across my desk, and I was instantly taken by how cute the green glass packaging is. Then I found out that that packaging was actually refillable so that Seed could share its products as sustainably as possible. And then I actually looked into the research behind Seed, and well, I was blown away. First of all, seed is not just a probiotic, it is a symbiotic. That means it contains both pre and probiotics, which is super important. In fact, if you remember my Ask the Doctor Gut Health Edition, we talked about how prebiotics are one of the most important and often underlooked components of great gut health. Let me break it down for you. Probiotics are the live bacteria that are so beneficial to our gut health but prebiotics are the food that those probiotics need to thrive. If you don't have ample prebiotics, the probiotics you're consuming will be undernourished and not be able to help your health in the way that you want. Speaking of your health, there's also a common misconception that probiotics or symbiotics are for people with gut issues, which is so not true. Like, yes, the seed symbiotic is amazing for your gut health, but your gut health impacts everything in your entire body, your skin, your mental health, your cardiovascular health, your ability to actually assimilate the maximum amount of nutrients from all that healthy food you're eating, having a happy gut is critical for all of it. It is hard to narrow down everything else that I love about seed. I am extremely particular with my supplements and I don't take many, but seed is just stellar across the board. It's been tested and tested and tested. Seriously, their testing process is bananas to make sure that it has 100% survival through the digestive process, which is so rare. And somehow they do all of that without needing refrigeration, which is very handy. I find that when I have refrigerated probiotics, I just forget about them and they get buried behind old jars of pasta sauce, whereas I keep these on my bedside table, so I'm reminded to take them every single night. They also contain the 24 strains that are the most scientifically studied to support your whole body's health. 
I am obviously passionate about this stuff. Taking care of my gut has been a key part of my own anxiety journey, and seed has been a vital part of that. So feel free to reach out with any questions. And if you like learning about gut health and how probiotics and prebiotics actually function, I highly recommend heading over to seed.com. They have a whole educational section that breaks down the science behind your microbiome in some of the easiest to understand ways that I have ever seen. And if you'd like to try Seed for yourself and pretty much change your life forever, you can get 15% off your first month's supply of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic by going to seed.com slash daily dash symbiotic and using the code Liz Moody. Again, that's code Liz Moody on seed.com slash daily dash S-Y-N-B-I-O-T-I-C. Now let's get back to the episode. I love the idea of looking for a cathexis when people are speaking because we have this idea of I want to be an engaged listener, but I think that can be hard in our tension-scattered world. And the idea of listening with a goal in mind almost makes listening feel easier where you're like, I'm listening and I'm looking for these moments that somebody is excited or especially interested in something. And then that moment to dive deeper almost makes the idea of being an active, engaged listener easier in a weird way. I totally agree. I love the idea of having a goal in mind. And going back to Rick Hansen's work, If you're looking for signals of safety, it's just a lot easier to be more present in general because you have to be present with someone to find those signals of safety. I find that it it actually makes me a lot more mindful when I'm able to engage in that practice. Do you have any other tips for taking somebody from being an acquaintance to more of a close friend? I know you said the repeated exposure is really necessary and really important, but I had listeners write in and say that they'd been in a book club with somebody for months and they couldn't figure out how to take that friendship from the book club to something outside the book club, for instance. Yes. So you're in a group, you're like, these people are cool. No one really feels like my friend though yet. You have to generate exclusivity, which means you have to start building memories and experiences with someone that they don't share with others in the group. So how do you do that? You just say, hey, it's been so great listening to the stuff you've shared in this book club. And I would love to connect further outside of this club. If you'd be open to that, could we exchange contact information and then follow up and be like, you want to meet before the book club? You want to meet after the book club? Like you really have to shoot your shot to make friends as an adult. I'm sorry to say you're going to feel a little uncomfortable. You're going to feel a little bit awkward. That doesn't mean you are awkward. People tend to really appreciate those initiations. People are lonelier now than they've ever been. So they're particularly open to new connections, especially after the pandemic. If you try, people are going to be way less likely to reject you than you think. Is there any way to keep up that momentum with new friendships without always having to be the one who's reaching out, the one who's planning friend dates, the one who's taking that initiative? Yeah, that's a great question. That's why I really like choosing something repeated over time because you have that social infrastructure, like creating social infrastructure for yourself. So even somebody you're taking from the book club, you could be like, hey, there's a weekly yoga class. Do you want to attend that together? So you're siphoning off, creating that exclusive experience, but you're doing it in a recurring way. Yeah, you can definitely do that. Or you can be like, would you be open to like a regular coffee before a book club each week, for example? The thing that's nice about the reoccurring infrastructure is that even if you're not putting all the effort into it to coordinate, 
it's just going to take off a little bit more because you have that regular meeting there. And when you rely on that infrastructure, you just don't have to be as intentional, which is why it can be a lot easier because a lot of us are so afraid of rejection. It's so hard for us to keep initiating. So that's why I really like the idea of creating the social infrastructure for yourself, whether that's a club that you create or that's a group that you join. I will say I've done these groups many different times. People have been very interested to participate in them and they have enjoyed them a lot. But with some groups, I've gotten into the same issues that I've talked about in Work Friends. We just talk about this work or this task, and we don't actually end up knowing each other as people. I'm like, oh, well, you're really intellectual. Like, you have really great contributions. Your analysis of this book is really great, but I don't actually feel like I know you, which is why it's important to, like, generate that exclusivity and stop talking about book club. Just start talking about a different topic than the topic that you usually talk about. That's why I also like book clubs or something like that because I feel like in my book clubs at least, they're to talk about the book, but it's because the book talks about cheating and we all really want to talk about our perspective on cheating or something like that. So you use the topics in the book as this really kind of like the conversation cards. It gives you this really safe jumping off space into a more vulnerable or intimate place. Yeah. Thinking even about how do you use our shared experience together to jump off into something different or new in this relationship. So let's say we're in book club, we're in our hiking group, we're looking around the room and we're trying to decide who we want to build those deeper friendships with. Could you give us two or three friend red flags to look for and two or three friend green flags? If there's people that you're like, I feel kind of good around them already, or I feel just comfortable or safe with them, pursue those relationships. But there's also just limitations to that in that toxicity People that are very narcissistic who tend to create toxic relationships, they have a different way of navigating relationships in what's called the emerging and the enduring stages. So they're emerging relationships, they're new relationships, they behave very differently than once you get to know them and the relationship becomes more established. Which means you could think, oh, this person's great, like, oh, they're interested in me or, you know, with narcissistic people, they're charismatic or there's magnetism or there's the spark, they just kind of pull you in, Right. But over time, you'll find that (laughs) that's not necessarily who they are, and it just takes some time to find that out. So I think there is limitations to, to what we can know really early on. I think we need to also normalize the experience of oh, I thought this might be a friend, but but maybe not this person. It turns out that that this isn't the connection that I thought it would be. That's normal, right? Because people are complex and there's a lot to them. And you don't know who someone fully is based off of an initial interaction with them. And this isn't based on the research, but I just like people that make my nervous system feel good. Like people that just make me feel comfortable, safe, calm. I know that sometimes I have a reaction to people who bulldoze you, like if you have a different opinion instead of what makes you you see things that way. And that, I guess, relates to this concept in, in the friendship research called identity affirmation. And people that are high in this identity affirmation are more likely to maintain their best friendships. And what their distinguishing characteristic is that basically they try to affirm who you are in your identities, whether or not that matches what they think is right for them or themselves. Is there a right amount of difference that our friends should be from us, according to research? Like going back to some of the earlier stuff we're talking about, how much is it beneficial for people to be friends with people with different political beliefs or different backgrounds? And how much is that hard on your nervous system and not making you feel safe? Oof, Liz, you asked me the tough questions. (laughs) What I will say 
different types of differences sit with us differently. (laughs) There are differences that make us expand and there are differences that make us shrink. We fundamentally figure out our identities through our friends, through some differences. Like, oh, my friend really likes to travel. I never thought about that for myself. But now because of my friend doing that, I start to consider it as a quality that I can take on. And their differences help me wrestle with what new things that I wouldn't have considered actually fit me and are part of who I am and part of my identity. And that's really part of how we become who we are. We realize all the different ways of being modeled in the world through our close relationships. And then we take those on and we figure out, does this fit me? And so that is a difference that I think can bode really well for friendship and help us evolve over time and have gains from it. But there are differences, for example, that can just make us feel unsafe. I feel like I can't be my full self with you because maybe you have this difference in your views on gay people, right? And that's part of my sexuality. So there's these other differences that make us sort of shrink (laughs) and feel maybe more drained after interactions when they feel like differences that really cleave our sense of our identity. So I would say the answer depends on the type of difference. And I don't know if I can give you like a specific amount. I think some people have more capacity for difference than other people. And and as a psychologist, I know that things like trauma, for example, can limit your ability to be around people that are, are just so different for you or, or tax your nervous system more. I talk about in my book how my first job as a professor, I was experiencing a lot of racism. And so was my friend who was a professor at a different institution. But I grew up in New York City. He grew up being Black in Germany, where people were saying blatantly racist remarks to him all the time. So he decided to stick out that position, and I did not. And what I want to in part is neither of us did anything wrong. We made the decision that best reflected our knowledge of who we are and our knowledge of our own capacities. And we don't have to have this one-size-fits-all approach that everybody needs to be expanding or extending themselves to be friends with people who maybe do make them feel more uncomfortable because it just depends on what your capacity is, what your values are. And I think that that's totally okay because if we try to force people who don't have the capacity to engage in those relationships, in fact, they're going to end up being negative relationships and create more division. That's both very permission giving and also a little bit harder work because you have to be like, well, what is my capacity? And my capacity might be different at this moment than this moment. And what is like, you have to be more tuned in with yourself and how you're feeling in every interaction, which is a little harder, but it's also very permission giving. You don't have to make yourself feel like shit all the time to be friends with people who are making you feel like shit, who who really disagree with you about things that are core intrinsic value. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I like what you said about always checking in with yourself because there's these theories of racial identity and there's these theories of like sexual orientation identity that kind of jump off of them that argue that like basically if you're from this stigmatized group, there might be some sort of trigger in the world that causes you to want to hibernate with people from your group. And that's just like part of the the identity-making process where you have this phase, it's called the immersion phase, where you just want to hang around people from your group because you're really looking for feelings of safety. And that can be triggered by all the things that we see happening in the world around police brutality or these hate crimes. 
And I think if we don't understand that as being part of our process, we could feel guilty ourselves when we're like, oh, I, you know, I feel like I want to hang out with these people that share my identities, make me feel very safe. Or if we're not from those identities, we can feel like, why are they excluding me? You know, I've always been their friend, but that's actually very normal and expected when it comes to to navigating relationships when you have a stigmatized identity. Would another extrapolation from that based on some of the other research you shared be that if we wanted to be a good friend to somebody with a stigmatized identity, that affirming them in that identity would be a way to be a good friend? Certainly, like if you're flexible to understand that there's things that this friend might look for people from their group that I just can't give them in the same way. Like recognizing that and not taking that personally, I think is really important. In the book, I talk about the importance of a concept called mutuality, which means if we are navigating friendship in a healthy way, I'm thinking about your needs and my needs and figuring out a solution that works best for both of us. I'm not necessarily expecting you to drive me to the airport when that's the time you work. I'm not just making demands without considering what's going on in your life. Anxiously attached people, they tend to to hold things against people. They don't consider their friend's circumstances. But the research basically finds that When privileged people listen to people from disadvantaged groups, it has a greater positive impact than when people from disadvantaged groups listen to privileged people. Reason being, people from disadvantaged groups are listening to privileged people all the time. So it's not like I'm getting new information. Whereas when the dynamic reverses, it's like the people with privilege are are learning something, they're empathizing more, they're taking new things away. And so what I suggest if you're navigating friendship across differences in identity is that you can't necessarily have mutuality in the same way. You might need an adjusted version of mutuality to account for the fact that if society is inherently unequal and we go into this relationship thinking our perspectives on this identity-related issue matter just as much as each other, we're just going to reflect that unequal dynamic. Because I've spent so much time trying to understand your experience to survive in this world, and you haven't spent as much time understanding mine. So if, if you come in with that level of privilege, you might have to like listen more, restate things more, right? Understand that there may be some limitations in how you're viewing things based off of your identity and because your experiences are really different. Understand that if you've experienced racism or any other isms, the impact is cumulative. Every time you experience it again, it triggers the weight of every time you've experienced it prior. So it can seem like, oh, this is a tiny little thing. Why are they reacting so strongly? And that is why, because these isms are cumulative. Every time it happens, we reconcile with the fact that, wow, the whole entire world like thinks of me this way. And that's what I've been experiencing throughout my whole life. So adjusted mutuality is recognizing, even if that feels small for you, I'm not going to assume that they should see it as minimal as I see it because I have a different identity. You mentioned best friendships. I would love to talk a little bit about how we can turn people into our best friends. I feel like a lot of people feel like they have a number of good friends, but they want that ride or die soulmate and they don't know how to get that person. I think it's important to discern who you want to be your best friend because I think a lot of the times we're really passive in our social worlds, like people that are reaching out to me, I'll just kind of go along with it. Pick who you want to be with your best friend. You're going to need more time together. You're going to need more time with them. And so trying to interact more regularly with that person that you've decided you want to get particularly close to, taking the risk of intimacy, saying like, you know, I really love hanging out with you. Like I would love for us to continue to get closer and see what their reaction is. There are certain things that predict whether our relationships become closer over time. 
Those things include like vulnerability, which we often think burdens people. But according to the research, the more we uh, intimately self-disclose, the more people like us. So being a little bit more vulnerable with that person, sharing more affection and affirmation with that person. When researchers like followed Friendship Paris for 12 weeks, those that endured were the ones where there was higher amounts of affirmation and affection towards each other. Also, one thing that really can solidify and deepen a relationship is being intentional about showing up for people in a time of need. So there's diagnostic moments in a friendship, like these moments that disproportionately impact how we view a friendship. And one is a moment when we really need support. So if a friend is sick, sending them soup, for example, or if a friend is going through a hard time, like writing them a card. For me, when I was struggling with writing my book, I had a friend send me like, one of those cameo videos from one of our favorite authors, Cheryl Strayed. And she just gave me all this advice on book writing and told me how great I was. That is such a cool gift. It was so cool, Liz. Yeah. And then I was just like, we're going to be friends forever. I hope you know that now. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And it feels so personal too. Like I do think trying to find ways of thinking of people that feels very specific to their situation has a way of making people feel really seen. Do you have any advice for friendships across different phases of life? A common complaint that I hear is people with kids only want to hang out with other people with kids and single people only want to hang out with other single people and people in couples only want to hang out with other people in couples. And I think that can really mess with both existing friendships because we change life phases all the time, but it also can really limit the new friendships that we make. So I'm curious on your take. My friend that just had a kid is like, everybody thinks I just want to hang out with my newborn and I don't want to talk to my friends anymore. And that's completely untrue. And they're not reaching out to me anymore. And so letting go of the belief that because they're at a different life stage, that means they don't want to hang out with me or interact with me. The assuming rejection thing being one of the biggest obstacles for friendship. And I think that really comes up when we're at different life stages. We're like, this person just want to hang out with their husband. This person just wants to hang out with their kids. I think it's important to actually still reach out <laughs> and still try to engage and not just assume that different life stages means that someone is all of a sudden not wanting to engage in the friendship anymore. Now, that being said, it could be that you're still trying to engage and the other person seems like they're engaging less and you can't control people and, and how they decide to change their relationship structures over time. But start with optimism, right? Start with assuming people like you and then take in the information after that if it's different from the initial assumption. I feel like I weirdly become the worst conversationalist in the world with my friends who have kids, especially when they've like newly had a baby. And I'm like, it feels weird to ask you about other stuff because you've had this huge life change, but I don't know that many things to ask you about like having, a I'm just like, well, it's out now. Are they sleeping? Well, I don't know the things to talk about in their new life phase, but then I feel like if I'm talking about other stuff, I'm ignoring this life phase that they've just entered that's this huge transition. And maybe this is a very niche problem, but I was wondering if you have any advice on that. I really think it's a good idea because I feel like new parents, I'm not a new parent. This is just speculative, but it is like really important to them, obviously, their kid and they want to talk about their kid, but it can also feel like, oh man, I'm really shrinking because the only thing I'm talking about is my kid. And this is only aspect of my identity in other people's eyes. It's like, <laughs> I remember someone who had a collection saying that I don't like to tell people that I like collect turtles because then it's like the only <laughs> gift that I get forever. <laughs> the turtle person. 
Yeah. So, so not making your friend into a turtle person means acknowledging their love for turtles, but also still asking about things outside of their turtley life. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's a good approach to friends who have kids, like asking them about both and seeing where the cathexis is. Ooh, the cathexis. We're always looking for the cathexis. One more question for me, and then we're going to get into some listener questions. I would love one or two bits of low-hanging fruit for maintaining friendships where you're not in the group. Maybe they're not even in the same city or town as you, but we want to keep that friendship strong. What's like the easiest little hack we can do to do that? Mindset shift. See it as flexible, not fragile, that this relationship will fall asleep for a few months, but that doesn't mean it's over. So you free yourself up to still reach out randomly over time months later. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. Okay, you know what stat blows my mind? People in the U.S. take about 20,000 breaths per day and spend an average of 90%, 90% of their time indoors. And that indoor air can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. Indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. I talked about this with a world-famous doctor friend years ago, and I was like, it is awful. What do I do? And she said, you need a high-quality air purifier, and you need to keep one in any room that you spend a ton of time in, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to Air Doctor. Air Doctor goes above and beyond the HEPA standard, which requires that 99.97% of particles at 0.3 microns be captured by a filter. Air Doctor uses an ultra HEPA filter that was independently tested and proven to remove at least 99.99% of particles as small as 0.003 microns. That is 100 times smaller than the HEPA standard. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander. For any other pet parents who are allergic to their babies, this makes the biggest difference in my allergies with Bella. Highly recommend for that alone. This includes dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Also, if you live somewhere that is coming up on potential fires this summer, please, please, please get an air doctor so you have it ready. Breathing in smoke is awful for your lungs. And as somebody who lives in California, it gives me such peace of mind that I have my air doctor ready to go. We have a few, but if you are starting with one, keep it in the bedroom. That way you're breathing great air for at least a third of your life and it'll help you get better sleep, which will have so many downstream positive effects. And as a little bonus extra, it has such a nice white noise sound. It actually helps me fall asleep and stay asleep. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you do not love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code LizMoody, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. And this part is exclusive to Liz Moody podcast listeners. You will receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Liz Moody. When I worked as a magazine editor, I wrote more than a thousand articles about turmeric because pretty much all of the doctors that I used as sources kept recommending it or citing it as one of the supplements that they would personally take. Here's the background. Turmeric is one of the most powerful ways to fight inflammation. In a nutshell, there are two types of inflammation, acute and chronic. Acute inflammation can actually be a good thing. It's one of the ways that your body heals and repairs itself. 
But when that system goes haywire, we get chronic inflammation, which essentially makes your body feel like it's constantly under attack. The vast majority of doctors I work with cite chronic inflammation as one of the root causes of so many of our modern ailments, and research links inflammation with heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, cancer, arthritis, and gut issues like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I am never going to sit around and tell you that a supplement will cure everything that ails you, but if you're looking for a turmeric supplement to help get your inflammation under control, I am extremely impressed with Paleo Valleys. To increase the bioavailability of turmeric, you need to consume it with black pepper, which most people know, and fat, which many people forget about. Paleo Valley's turmeric complex has black pepper and coconut oil to maximize absorption and three other powerful anti-inflammatories, ginger, rosemary, and clove, for a maximum synergistic response. It also has no fillers, binders, or preservatives and is made with all organic ingredients and just a veggie capsule. Finally, it's third-party tested, which is something I always look for in supplements as extra assurance of their quality. I've had my uncle taking this for about three months, and he's gone from having debilitating back pain due to an autoimmune condition to being almost completely pain-free. Paleovality has a number of other incredibly high-quality, food-derived supplements, including a vitamin C that I adore. Vitamin C is my ultimate favorite supplement for skin health, and a neuro-effect mushroom powder that Zach loves for increasing energy and focus, so definitely explore their website. If you'd like to check out the turmeric complex, the vitamin C, the neuro effect, or any of Paleo Valley's other amazing products, head over to paleovalley.com and use the code LizM for 15% off. That's paleovalley.com and code LizM for 15% off your order. And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Instagram. I love chatting about this stuff. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay, a listener wrote in. I feel intimidated by the type of person I want to befriend. Like, I'm not cool enough for the friends I really am interested in having. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that one of your takes is going to be assume that we are really cool. But I've been thinking a lot about mentorship and that quote that we are the combination of the five people that are closest to us, like that that's the representation of us. So if we're trying to up-level those people and we don't feel like we've up-leveled yet because we haven't up-leveled those people then how do we up-level without having up-leveled those people, if that makes sense? Like, can you kind of help with that that general notion? Yeah, this reminds me of going back to the research on uh, self-esteem. There's this theory called self-verification theory, which argues that we look for people that verify our sense of who we are, whether it's good or bad. People with low self-esteem will report preferring to hang out with people that see them more negatively than people that see them positively. And the reason, not because they don't want to feel loved and affirmed, it's that when people love and affirm them, they don't trust it because it doesn't reflect their sense of who they are. So it's like the options are either people perceive me negatively or people are trying to manipulate me, (laughs) which is why perception is so key. When we know that's happening, we can actually say, oh, this person values me. I'm actually going to like let that hit me. I'm going to take it in. I'm going to believe it to be true and I'm going to believe myself to be valued. And I think in general in social connection, it's really important to try to internalize the belief that nobody's better than me and I'm not better than anyone. Reason being that connection really doesn't form well on a hierarchy. Like if you think people are better than you, which I think happens when we're intimidated by people, 
it affects what we're willing to share with them, right? I don't want to be as vulnerable with you because I don't want you to judge me because you're better than me. And so we we can sort of unconsciously be, feel pulled to approach the connection in ways that harm the connection because we know vulnerability really does facilitate connection. So I would I would say it's probably easier said than done. Again, taking in signals of safety can help. But just trying to remind yourself, like, nobody's better than me. I'm not better than anyone. And if people, these intimidating people do show you in some way that they like and value you, not being like, they're just saying that, like, they're too cool. They don't actually like me. Take it at face value. Just receive it. And would that mean that you should feel free to go for friendships with anybody at any social status, even people you perceive as cooler or more successful than you? Yes, because people that are cool and successful often don't feel like that internally. (laughs) So they might not feel like they're cooler or more successful than you, even though you perceive it that way. Literally everybody is just so afraid of rejection and can be so self-critical of themselves just because you think, oh, they're so much better than me. Doesn't mean they see it that way. And I think that can often be a barrier for people that maybe have a certain set of accolades or are higher up. When they want to create connection, people assume that they that they don't want to have connections with with others. And it can almost isolate them. And that's what I hear from people that are, you know, more established and accomplished in their careers. So you can be friends with Oprah. I could be friends with <laughs> Oprah. If she's listening, <laughs> I'm just waiting for her to reach out. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about with that? Like you are the collection of the five people that are closest to you. It's something I've heard before, but I don't know if there was a study or research behind that. So when we get close to people, we tend to begin to include them in our sense of ourselves, which means when something happens to them that's hurtful, our brain literally lights up like it's happening to us. Like we empathize with them more naturally. Their successes feel like our successes. That's really what it means to connect with people. You begin to become part of my sense of myself. And when I told you like only half of our friends consider us friends, the truth is that the people that we consider friends who consider us friends have a lot greater impact on us where they're more likely to influence us than people that we don't consider friends. So there's a particular openness that we have towards taking in the personality or characteristics of people that we feel really close to. Which I think can be really inspiring in a positive direction because if you want to take on different traits or different attributes, like if you want to be more outgoing or social, you can kind of bring a social person into your circle and that can bring out those elements in yourself. But it's also this huge warning sign, at least for me, of like, if I don't want to be really negative and be thinking about all of the difficult things in life all the time or something like that. And then I have a friend I'm always hanging out with who's bringing out that side of me. I think that's something to watch out for as well. Exactly. The research basically finds that our personalities are contagious. Our moods are contagious. Our habits are contagious towards other people. And so even if you're not trying to, you, you sort of take on the traits and characteristics. Like, for example, I remember my friend's a linguist and she was telling me that the closer you are to someone, the more you just start unconsciously mimicking their accent and way of speaking. This is why I needed more of those British friends so I could get the cool British accent when I was in England. I tried so hard <laughs> and I came away with nothing, not even a Madonna oh. or Gwyneth. All right. Another listener question. How do I help my husband make friends as an adult? I don't want to manage his social life, but I think he would really benefit from guy friends. And he talks about wanting guy friends, but he doesn't do anything to make them on his own. Oh, man. I think a lot of women in relationships with men (laughs) face this issue. We know from the research that 
when men get into relationships, they tend to lose more friends. They tend to focus more on that primary partnership. And I used to be judgmental of that until I realized how different for men their relationship with their romantic partner tends to be from their relationship with their friends. I think, you know, as women, and this is obviously a generalization, that there tends to be a lot more overlap between the level of depth and intimacy that you have with your romantic partner versus your friends. And then I realized, oh, no wonder men will give up their friends and focus on their romantic partner because they are so much more vulnerable and share so much more of themselves and get so much more compared to me where I'm like, yeah, I have this romantic partner and they're great, but I also have these friends and they're equally great. I just have a lot of sympathy for men. My brother has been trying to make friends and he'll ask a guy for dinner and that guy will be like, I think that comes off as kind of weird. Could we have lunch or like bring in another person? There's like so much fear around being perceived as gay for heterosexual men. It's called homosteria in the research, the fear of being perceived as gay, which has ravaged, destroyed men's friendships. Like this wasn't true in the early 1800s. And back then you see men writing love letters to their friends, sleeping in the same beds as their friends, you know, literally cuddling with their friends, you know, and and at that time, homophobia was different. Like it was forbidden to have sex with someone of the same sex, but we didn't have sexual identities. It was just like, don't have sex with someone of the same sex, not don't act this way because it can signify a sexual identity. And then Sigmund Freud, Richard von Kraft Ebbing, two psychiatrists, they wanted to argue that it's a disorder to have sex with someone of the same sex. So now they argued that it's an entire identity that you have if you ha- if you are interested in having sex with someone of the same sex. And this identity can be indicated by being a little too loving or cuddling with your friends, which before them, that wasn't stigmatized because that's not sex, right? That's not sex. We assume that it's sex, but it's not. And so after them, all of our friendships really changed. Like people were just like, should I say this? Does it come off as too much? Are they going to think that I'm interested in them? All of these behaviors that were such a natural part of our friendships, like physical touch, writing these really loving letters, those were no longer normal. And men have particularly paid the price such that now I think men fear that the normal and natural behaviors that cultivate friendship, like vulnerability, like affirming people, that those could call into question their sexuality. So they're just in this really trapped, stuck place that makes me empathize with them and understand why men are more likely to have no friends. I think it's like 15% of men have no friends. One out of every five or six single men have no friends. So how do we fix it? I know that you can't fix probably 150 years of history, but can you try? How do we become less homophobic, I think? So I love the idea of creating social infrastructure because you make one decision and now you don't have to make a bunch of other decisions. It's not like I have to keep initiating with you and keep practicing in this way. And I think people that aren't used to friendship, they need something that's easy or will sort of move on its own a little bit. So I would say if you could encourage your husband to do one thing and you can't force him, he's his own person, right? But if you'd encourage him to do one thing, see if he might be interested in joining some sort of social group related to his interests. And I will also say to men, something that I wanted to share is there are men that really want connection and intimacy. There's men that don't. And there are men that are very afraid of it because of homohysteria, right? Which is linked to having less vulnerability in your friendships. But there are men that are less homohysteric. There are men who just want community with other men. And there's groups like every man group that is for men to connect with each other specifically. These groups are propping up more and more. And so it's also about 
picking people that are ready to be as invested as you are. And I think for women, that can be a little easier because we're socialized to like value connection. So you can pick and someone will, will, will be ready for friendship like you are. But men, they might, need, they might need to sift a little more until they find men that are like ready for intimacy, ready for vulnerability, ready for mutual support seeking and those deeper parts of friendship. That's a huge takeaway for me from this episode is like instead of spending so much effort trying to turn people into the right friend for you at the time, look for people who are available and accessible and interested in friendship in the same way that you are. Like dating, right? Stop going for emotionally unavailable people. Stop going for unavailable friends. Okay. Last two. This is from a listener. I am from a really liberal place, and I just moved to a smaller, more religious and conservative town. I want friends, but I feel judged by the people here. And to be honest, I also judge them. Any advice? And then I will add that I got a lot of listener questions from people who didn't feel like the place that they lived actually had people with the vibes that they wanted to be friends with. So I'm curious if you think there's always friends for us in a place if we look hard enough or what your advice would be in a larger way for this type of situation? Part of my advice is to stay connected with the people that you do feel very comfortable around because once you start getting lonely, it makes you very cynical of others. It makes you more judgmental of them. Loneliness isn't just a feeling. It really alters how we perceive people. We think people are rejecting us more. We like humanity less. We like our roommates less. This is according to the research. That's how loneliness affects us, which is why I think when you move to a new place where they don't necessarily have the people that you're used to connecting with, if you're lonely, it's going to amplify how alienated you feel and how hopeless you feel. So it's really important that you maintain your relationships with those people that make you feel really connected so you have the wherewithal to create these connections that aren't as intuitive to you. Then I will say, once you go out into the world, I do think there's always niches that are different from the average person in a place that you live. And just like the advice that I gave to men, it might be more of a sifting process. So expect a little bit more of a sifting process. But also there's sometimes like social groups that are for people that have moved to one city to another, like New Yorkers in Atlanta or something like that. And I don't know how small their town is and whether that's possible. But also you can look for those sorts of connections. I think this also makes me think about what I said around capacity too, like being honest with yourself. What's my capacity <laughs> to engage with these people? And looking at the larger pros and cons here. I think when we first move to a new city, we should expect that our connections, we're going to start out hanging out with people we wouldn't normally hang out with. And that's just inherent to being new to a social environment. We can't expect it to be at the same level of intimacy. If you think about it, is having some sort of friendship with these people that see the world very differently than you are. Does that feel better to you than being alone? Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is no, based on your own capacity. So you might want to experiment a little and check on yourself. And then can you just leave us with one homework assignment, something that we can all do as soon as we're done listening to the podcast that we can either use to deepen existing friendships or to make new friendships that are valuable and satisfying? I want you to think about someone in your network who you've always wanted to get to know better and be friends with, and you've been like, how the heck do I do it? And I want you to reach out to them and say to them, it's been so great interacting with you thus far. I've really enjoyed it. I was wondering if you would be open to getting some coffee or getting some lunch or going for a walk. Shoot your shot. That's my takeaway. 
I love that. I'm going to do that as soon as we're done talking. I'm going to talk all about your beautiful book at the beginning of the episode, but I would love to hear from you in your own words about the book, about everything you have going on right now. So if you want a deeper dive into all the things we talked about today, you can read the book. It specifically incorporates attachment theory. The idea is like our personalities are reflections of our previous experiences of connection or lack thereof. And then who we are affects how we connect. It's not random. It's secular and it's self-reinforcing. So that book is called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. I also share more friendship tips on my Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco, D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. On my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you could hire me to speak on connection or belonging or take my quiz, which assesses your friendship strengths and weaknesses and gives you tips on how to improve your friendships. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I love this and I learned so much. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. This was great. How fascinating was that? I literally had no idea there was even that much research into friendship. I was just sitting there with my jaw open the entire time I was talking to Marissa. Okay, a few quick things that I'd be remiss not to mention. One, if you want to join an ongoing group like Marissa talked about, might I recommend a Healthier Together podcast club? We are in the process of organizing in-person meetups all over the world, so I will leave a link for that in the show notes. Also, if you would like to get your hands on a Healthier Together deck so you can have more satisfying conversations all around, we are currently completely sold out, which blew my mind. You guys are awesome. But we are working to restock as quickly as possible, and we're taking pre-orders right now so you can go to htdeck.com to get the first new ones that come in. Finally, I highly recommend joining the Healthier Together Podcast Club Facebook group, which I will link in the show notes. It is such a fun place to discuss each episode, but it's also filled with a ton of resources like product recommendations and tips from you guys about what's working and not working in your lives from each episode and just so much good stuff there. So linked in the show notes, definitely check that out. Okay, let's talk giveaway. Marissa has generously agreed to give five winners a free copy of her brand new book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, which goes even deeper into all of the topics that we talked about today. It is such a fun and informative read, and if you're interested in this subject, you will absolutely love it. To enter, just make sure that you're following at Liz Moody and at Dr. Marissa G. Franco on Instagram, and then comment on my most recent post, what you loved or learned in this episode. The post does not have to be about the episode. Just mention Marissa so that I know that you're entering. If you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including one all about epigenetics and hacking our genes, and one filled with tips for creating healthy boundaries with everybody that we need to create those boundaries with in our lives. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so you do not miss out on anything. Okay. I love you and I will see you on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals, but I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium, and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use. 
and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found. And the research around Shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on symbiotica.com.